Welcome to Teacher Zion Podcast. This is your host, Doug Hatton, a guy from Michigan living in Independence, Missouri, happily married to a Missouri gal. Today I thought we'd talk about the controversy surrounding the seer stone. You know, seer stone or the stone in the hat versus the Urim and Thummim versus the Nephite interpreters. Not only because it has been a controversy, but because it's just downright confusing. I've had a number of listeners comment or write to me regarding this topic, so I thought I'd address it and give you my take. Having been raised in the tradition of the RLDS Church, now known as the Community of Christ, I spent most of my adult life sticking with the idea that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon. It is what the church taught, and more often than not, it was only critics of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon who would bring up the idea of a seer stone. I didn't know what to do with this stone-in-the-hat business, so I basically was in denial about it. Years ago, I read a book called Divine Origin of the Restoration by a man named Edward Butterworth. In it, he theorized that the seer stone may have been a stone that represented the tribe of Joseph, which would be attached to the breastplate of the high priest, along with the eleven other stones. That seemed more logical than Joseph using some seer stone he had found, so I became open to the idea that perhaps this stone did play some role. But still, the whole matter remained confusing. Almost nobody ever addressed this question, it seemed to be basically ignored by the church. I had also heard it postulated by someone that after Martin Harris lost the 116 pages, that the Urim and Thummim had been taken from Joseph Smith, and after that he used the stone to translate the plates. This never sat right with me either, nor could I find any real evidence of it. Why would God suddenly change how the plates were to be translated? As for Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, they remained silent about any use of a seer stone, and they remained consistent in their testimony that they used the Urim and Thummim to translate the plates, and that this device was included in the stone box containing the plates. The Lord told the brother of Jared to write a record and to seal it up along with two stones so that a future generation could interpret the text. We don't know how he obtained these two stones. Perhaps the Lord touched them as he did the sixteen stones for the brother of Jared so they would have light on their barges. Later on, Mosiah the Younger would use them to translate the Jaredite record. We do not know how Mosiah obtained them either. However, it is possible that he received them from his grandfather, the first Mosiah, who, along with other Nephites, had merged with the Mulekites in Zarahemla, which was the final resting place of Coriamtoner, the last Jaredite king. The second Mosiah would eventually pass the interpreters to the other Nephite prophets. Moroni would then abridge the Jaredite record from 24 gold plates, called the Plates of Ether, into a much shorter book of Ether that we have today in our Book of Mormon. And it seems that the interpreters were then placed in the stone box with the plates that Joseph received. We don't know much about these interpreters, only what the Book of Mormon says about them. In the Book of Mosiah, 
Ammon tells King Limhi that Mosiah can interpret the Jaredite record, quote, For he has wherewith that he can look, and translate all records that are of ancient date, and it is a gift from God. And the things are called interpreters, and no man can look in them, except he be commanded, lest he should look for that which he ought not, and he should perish. And whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called a seer. End quote. Everything about seers and these stones is really a mystery to modern readers, but it appears that these stones are linked directly to the ability of a seer, and he must look into the stones to see. Mosiah goes on to say that a seer can, quote, know of things which have passed and also of things which are to come, and by them shall all things be revealed, or rather shall secret things be made manifest, and hidden things shall come to light, and things which are not known shall be made known unto them. End quote. So it would appear that the use of these stones by a seer are not limited to translating languages alone which might explain why the first elders of the church testified that the first revelations that Joseph received all the way up until June of 1829 were received by way of the Urim and Thummim. David Whitmer believed Joseph used a singular seer stone, but we will address that shortly. When the translation of the plates were finished, Joseph did not retain the plates or the interpreter stones, but they were retrieved by an angel. And so after the translation of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith no longer had these stones. David Whitmer testified that the nature of Joseph's revelations changed after that. And when comparing the early revelations as they were originally given before they were modified to the revelations given after Joseph gave up the stones, I would have to agree. The first bit of confusion I would like to address is the difference between the Urim and Thummim and the Nephite interpreters. In my research on the topic, as best as I can determine, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery simply came to call the interpreter stones the Urim and Thummim. Their testimony has always been that these were included with the plates and that they were called interpreters in the Book of Mormon. Joseph believed these two stones were the same thing as the Urim and Thummim. And to be honest, the more I look into the matter, the more I am inclined to believe he may have been right, although it cannot be proved with absolute certainty. The first objection people have to this idea is that the Book of Mormon does not call them a Urim and Thummim. However, there is also nothing to refute that it was. The only description we are given of these interpreters is that they are two stones, and that they could be used to interpret ancient languages. Now that description doesn't necessarily restrict how they could be used, only that Ammon describes him this way within the context of King Limhi asking him if he knows of someone who can translate the Jaredite plates. Therefore, Ammon tells him about the two stones, and that those who can use those stones are called seers, and that they can not only see things from the past, but things in the future. So based on that information, I don't think it is out of bounds to theorize that the use of these stones may have extended beyond just using to translate languages. If that is all that these two stones could do, 
translate languages, then that would make this a novel instrument, unique to the Book of Mormon alone, with no apparent connection to the rest of the history of man as recorded in the Bible that we have today. However, if Joseph was right to consider these two stones to essentially be a Urim and Thummim, that raises some interesting questions. I think one of the issues people have is that we have confused the Urim and Thummim with the priestly breastplate. The breastplate was part of the vestment of the high priest, on which were attached 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The Urim and Thummim itself, however, was kept in a pocket within the breastplate, and it could be attached to the breastplate when in use. Now, this is very much similar to how Joseph Smith described the usage of the Urim and Thummim, or the interpreters, as does Oliver Cowdery, who was given permission to attempt to assist in translating the plates. Therefore, he would have seen the Urim and Thummim, or the interpreters, and the plates. I want to take just a moment here to say that people have a lot of ideas about what the Urim and Thummim is, due to speculation on the part of various biblical scholars. I have spent years, off and on, researching everything I could find on this device, and from everything I've been able to read from experts, the primary thing I've taken away from it is that no one really knows anything at all about the Urim and Thummim, except for three things. First, that it included two objects. Second, that they were used by the high priest to answer a question or reveal the will of God. And three, that these two objects were called Urim and the other called Thummim, which together is translated lights and perfections. So one object is the Urim and the other object is the Thummim. That's it. That is the extent of our absolute knowledge about it. No one knows what they look like, what they were made of, or how they were used. Everything else you've heard is just pure speculation. The idea that the high priest could receive revelation from the Urim and Thummim of the Bible would seem to be in harmony with what Mosiah says about seers and the use of the two stones, that they can be used to reveal things. So again, the Urim and Thummim is composed of two mysterious objects, which are unknown. And the interpreters of the Book of Mormon are two mysterious stones. This is perhaps a coincidence, but at the very least, we must admit there is a parallel here between these two. And because of this, I think one theory we can entertain is that what Joseph originally understood only to be the two stones by which he could translate the plates he later identified, or perhaps understood, to essentially be the same two kinds of stones that were called Urim and Thummim in the Bible. Not that they were the very same set of stones as found in the Bible, but possibly a new set given to the brother of Jared. Whatever the case may be, and whether or not the two stones placed in the stone box, along with the plates, constituted the same thing as the Urim and Thummim, this question is no longer really an issue for me. Whether someone wants to use the word interpreters or use the name Urim and Thummim, I'm good either way. But that still leaves us with one dilemma, which is what is up with the stories about a seer stone that Joseph put in a hat? Now, this question has plagued me for many years with no resolution in sight. 
reading the various accounts of how Joseph Smith supposedly translated the Book of Mormon plates brought nothing but confusion. So I set the matter on a shelf, believing or hoping that one day the Lord would clear this up. And then I came across the book, A Man That Can Translate, Joseph Smith and the Nephite Interpreters, by Jonathan Neville. Reading that book answered so many questions. Jonathan approaches a subject of the stone in the hat as an expert investigator who patiently examines every piece of evidence and every witness in order to try to get to the bottom of the mystery. There's a ton of great information in this book, including how the Lord arranged to have Joseph translate from a second set of plates in order to fill in the gap missing from the lost 116 pages, which most people have never heard about. And it also offers possible insight into how the translation process worked. But best of all for me was the benefit of the in-depth research he has done on the topic of the seer stone. I definitely recommend this book, and I can't possibly cover all of the fascinating details that are contained therein, but I will share just a brief, high-level explanation of what he found regarding the seer stone controversy. The essence of it is, when he tracked down every instance where somebody testified that Joseph Smith had used a stone in the hat to translate the Book of Mormon, most of those people were not actual eyewitnesses, but had only relayed second-hand or even third-hand or fourth-hand accounts. So he then traced the story down to the few actual eyewitnesses. And almost without exception, it appears that this story can be traced back to just a single event. That event occurred after Joseph, who had been taking up a room in the Whitmer household in order to translate, gave in to pressure from the Whitmer family and from other supporters to give them a demonstration on how he translated. There was just one problem, though, that Joseph had. He was under very strict command from God to never show the plates or the Urim and Thummim to anyone except those whom God had expressly allowed to see them. He had just suffered terribly as a result of the loss of the 116 pages and wasn't about to disobey the instructions given to him about the plates at this point. So his dilemma was, how do you give a demonstration of the translation process when you cannot show it to them? Additionally, he had been keeping both the plates and the interpreters hidden because it was known that people were seeking to get their hands on them. From what Jonathan was able to piece together in order to get people off his back, Joseph arranged a demonstration in which a group of supporters, friends, and family attended. Joseph had something sitting under a blanket in a far corner of the room, which he said was the plates. In truth, the plates might not have even been there, but possibly hidden away just in case anyone got any ideas. He then sat on the other side of the room, took out an old peepstone he may have had from his youth, and placed it under a hat. From what we can tell from eyewitness accounts, Joseph may have recited some verses of Isaiah that he had perhaps memorized. David Whitmer was in attendance of this demonstration, but he was never afforded the opportunity to see the actual translation process take place. He was never allowed that privilege by God. Which may explain why David Whitmer thought that Joseph Smith used a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. However, Oliver Cowdery had, since he was allowed to attempt to translate himself. 
So this appears to be the origin of the story about a stone in a hat. All witnesses point back to this one event. There is some additional evidence to suggest that David Whitmer and others later learned that this was not the method of translation, but he and others may have decided to stick with this account. Why? Because it was the best defense they had against the single greatest threat that existed at that time against the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. And that was a book called Mormonism Unveiled, which was published in 1834 by E.D. Howe. In that book, the author made the claim that behind the curtain where Joseph sat translating the plates, where the scribe could not see him, that Joseph Smith actually had the Spalding Manuscript, which he supposedly read from, and that the Book of Mormon was plagiarized from this now missing manuscript, which people claimed had a similar story and similar names as found in the Book of Mormon. This manuscript was actually found in the 1980s, and the theory has been totally disproved, as the story was nothing like the Book of Mormon, nor were the various names used in the Book of Mormon anything found in the manuscript. But during David Whitmer's lifetime, even until the time of his death, it remained the single greatest assault against the Book of Mormon. So if people testified that, in fact, Joseph Smith did not sit behind a curtain, but sat instead in plain sight, placing a stone inside a hat and pulling that hat down over his face to block out the light. Well then, there's just no way on earth he could have been reading from a manuscript inside of there. And so the story of the stone in the hat lived on. David Whitmer never corrected it. And so what began as a defense against the Spalding manuscript claim remains the source of so much confusion to this day. Jonathan Nevelle's book provides many details on the subject. Since I cannot provide even a fraction of the pages and pages of evidence found in this book, if you are interested in digging into the nitty-gritty details, I would recommend getting a copy of the book. For me, it was well worth the investment. That's Jonathan, and the last name is spelled N-E-V-I-L-L. E. I hope that some of the things I've shared today were helpful to you in some way. I certainly cannot answer every question on the subject, but, but maybe this humble presentation has helped somebody to get some additional clarity on the topic. If you want to reach out and make a comment or share something or ask a question, feel free to email me at teacherinzine at gmail.com. And if I haven't totally offended you, I hope you will join us again. Until next time, God bless.